Let's ask God to guide us. Father, guide us in your word today as we look at the resurrection story. And just teach us what we need to know, Father. So thank you. In Christ's name, amen. Do you struggle with doubt? Come on, I need some confessions here. Do you struggle with doubt? I think it's a fairly human thing. You know, I mean, we think about we have doubt in our relationships. Does this one really love me? We have doubt about our health. This whole COVID thing has raised lots of doubt about doubts about the future of our health. Um, I, I personally, I became a Christian when I was 20 years old. I was raised in a very secular home. We, we weren't against God. We just there was no God in our home. And so when the people who talked to me about Jesus it took them about a year. To talk to me, it was, took, it, but it was a year long as we talked about Jesus, and I had tons of questions and, and lots of doubts about Christianity. And, and part of that is my nature. I, I, whether that's good or bad, I don't know. But I tend to, I have to doubt something before I believe it. Do you follow me? So is doubt bad? Today we're going to look at the story of the resurrection, specifically about one of the apostles named Thomas. And he got the bad rap of being known as Doubting Thomas. So we'll look at Doubting Thomas today. But let's look at the theme of the Gospel of John. We've, been, we've spent about seven months now in this church going through the Gospel of John. And I, I did the calendar of preaching so that today we could talk about John 20, the resurrection. But in John 20, we have the theme statement for the Gospel of John. Here's why the Apostle John wrote this Gospel. Verse 30, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in the book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. If you look at that verse carefully, it said that there were signs that Jesus did so that you would believe. So Jesus did certain miracles. He did everything from feed the 6,000. He healed people. He raised Lazarus from the dead. And the greatest miracle in the Gospel of John, the greatest sign, is the resurrection. And these are all there to give you evidence of who Jesus is. The problem is, I didn't see the signs. And no one in this room was there to see the signs. But yet this is written, this is written a good 40, 50 years after Jesus walked this earth so that they would say, listen, John says, I saw these things. And I'm writing them so you will believe. We have to trust the eyewitnesses. We'll come back to that. So let's jump into this story. And I call it a story because it is a story, but it's a true story. Let's look at the resurrection of the king, the son of God. Um, there's a lead up. I'm going to start in verse 19 of chapter 20, but there's a lead up. So, so Mary goes to the tomb the next morning after he's, or, or on the first day of the week, which is Sunday. She goes to the tomb. The day before was the Sabbath, so she could not do that. So she went to the tomb the first day of the week in order to prepare the body for permanent burial. And she gets there, and the stone's rolled away. And he's not there. And she's freaked out. So she runs back to tell Peter. And then Peter and John run, and she comes with them, and some of the ladies came too. But Peter and John run back to the tomb and confirm that he's not there. In fact, when they looked in the tomb... They saw the barrier cloth that wrapped his body. If you remember from, if you're going to this church last week, we talked about the fact that, that Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus wrapped Jesus' body in 75 pounds of aloes and, and herbs and things, and, and then wrapped him in cloth, and then did a separate cloth around his head. 
They look in, they see the cloth that wrapped his body, and then the head cloth folded up and sitting on a shelf. This is the tomb. So Peter doubted, but it said John believed. Then they go back to their house. Mary came and returned and stayed. And she sees two angels in the tomb, which freaked her out. But then there's a man out there, standing out there, and she walks up to him, thinking he's the gardener. It says, what have you done with my Lord? Where did you put his body? Tell me and I'll go get it. And at that point, Jesus spoke to her and she saw that it was her master. She called him Rabboni, which means teacher. And he said to her, now go back to the disciples and tell them that, it's, that I'm coming to see them soon. And so she runs back and tells the disciples. So we're gonna pick the story up in verse 19. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, which is Sunday, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews. Now, Jews here refers to the leadership, the leadership of the Israel that was opposed to Jesus, that along with the Romans put him to death. For fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. When he said to them this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad. Now, the word glad there, I think it's a weak translation of the Greek word. Other translations, overjoyed or, or rejoiced. So that this wasn't just, oh, I'm happy today. The, 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 the Savior they saw murdered is now standing in front of them, his body healed. If you remember the passion of the Christ, if you saw that, and if Mel Gibson did it right, Jesus' body was mutilated from the beating. But now it's evidently healed, but there is still scars in his hands, his feet, and his side from the sword. So he says, look, it's me. When they saw the Lord, they rejoiced when they saw the Lord. And Jesus said to them, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. So twice, peace be with you. Jesus is saying here, because they're filled with anxiety, they're filled with fear. Because the Romans put Jesus to death as an insurrectionist. The Jewish leadership did not want him coming around claiming to be the king of the Jews. Normally, if you put to death an insurrectionist, you kill his disciples too. We saw last week, though, that, that Jesus set it up to where they were set. They, did not, they were not arrested. But they're fearful. Peace be with you. Relax. Shalom would be the Hebrew word, shalom. The unbelievable has come true. The impossible has been realized. The man whom they saw beaten and murdered was truly alive standing in front of them. Now let's look at the role of doubt in a strong faith. I asked you if you have doubts about life. Can I ask for some transparency here? Are there doubts about the Christian faith? Some of the details. I see a few brave souls. I raised my hand. I've been a Christian for 43 years now. And I still go, yeah, but. Is this all that true? Do I have it right? And I don't say that to say it's unbelievable. I want to suggest to you it's very believable. But the human mind struggles with doubt. And let's look at Thomas here. 
But let, let me give you an illustration about how doubt can be destructive. I would call myself a UFO atheist. Okay, what do I mean by that? Not picking on any atheists in the room. I'm just, I'm using you. I guess I am picking on you, but um, an atheist would be someone that, said that categorically believes God does not exist. All right? Now, I, I categorically believe UFOs don't exist. I don't care how much evidence you present to me. I'll look for another explanation of UFOs. I, if they come and they beam me up and do brain surgery, I have had brain surgery. They do brain surgery on me and send me back down. I'll say, oh, there's another explanation. <laughs> do you see how an extreme doubt can cause you not even to look at the evidence? How many UFO atheists in the room? Wow, am I alone? This is, this is um, kind of scary. Um, and it's pretty inconsequential. If it's true, then... then Nothing I can do about it. Let's look at Thomas, doubting Thomas, and his doubts about the resurrection. Verse 24. Now remember, Jesus appeared to him, and we're going to learn that Thomas wasn't there. Verse 24. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. Imagine their excitement. I mean, he comes in. He's all sour or, or, or dour. He's, he is discouraged. He's, you know, he's fearful, too. And he comes into a room that he probably left not long ago. And everyone was in the same mood. But he comes in now, and everyone's thrilled. They're rejoicing, saying, Jesus is alive. We've seen him. So, so the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, not so fast. Unless I, that's, I put that in there, by the way. Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger in the mark of the nails and place my hand in his side, I will never believe. The word never there in Greek, Greek has a couple of different ways of, of making a sentence negative. This is the strongest one they can do. I will never believe unless I have physical evidence. Judas is from Missouri. What's the motto of Missouri? Show me. The show me state. Prove it. I need hard evidence. Is he out of line? Is he different than the other apostles? Think about it. Would the other apostles believe the resurrection? If, if Mary Magdalene came and said, I've seen the Lord, he's alive, would they all, did they all believe? No, they didn't believe. By the way, it's interesting that the only people that didn't abandon Jesus at the cross were the ladies. And so who got to see Jesus first? The ladies. And when you talk about evidence in ancient Israel at this time, no offense, ladies, but this time a woman's testimony wasn't counted as valid. So if they made all this up, they wouldn't have had Jesus appear to a woman first. They had him appear to a valid person, a man. He didn't. He appeared to the ladies first. John shows Mary, other apostles, other um, gospels, name other ladies there. So, let's keep reading. Verse 26. Eight days later, G Jesus made Thomas wait eight days. His disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, still afraid, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace 
be with you the third time. Then he said to Thomas, you can just see Jesus walk up to Thomas. Put your fingers in my hand. Put your hand in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. That's the English Standard Translation. Listen to the NIV. Do not doubt. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas had great doubts. And it's not that Jesus is rebuking him for doubting. There's a time for doubt to be dealt with, and you rise above it. And Jesus is saying to Thomas, here's the evidence you asked for. Now stop doubting and believe. What does Thomas do? Look at the screen up there. Next verse. Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. The major theme of the Gospel of John is that Jesus, the man Jesus Christ, was in glory before creation, but he became human. <clears throat> became human. God became flesh. And all through the Gospel of John, there's this teachings and hints that Jesus is the God of the Old Testament. In the culmination of the Gospel of John, and I can just imagine Thomas hitting the ground. doesn't say that, but I can imagine it. My Lord and my God. That was the response of the proof showed to Thomas. And here's what Jesus said to him. Now, Jesus talks about you and me now. Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. So that's talking about every generation after the apostles that did not get to see the risen Christ but still believe. Christianity worldwide is the largest religion. It's the largest faith system out there. So these 12 fishermen, tax collectors, whatever other professions they had, uneducated men, took the gospel to the world based upon their eyewitness testimony, and the world believed. And the gospel spread quickly. By the end of their life, the gospel has gone to Rome, the capital. And by the end of the first century, the gospel is in England. In one generation. We did not get to touch Jesus or see him. But we are blessed if we believe. Can I trust the eyewitnesses? That's what we're dependent upon. We're dependent upon believing these guys truly reported well what actually happened. Now, for you, I know some people in the room here were saying, well, what about the Holy Spirit? 100% the Holy Spirit is the one who reveals truth to us, not discounting that at all. He's the one that opens our eyes. But it's a process for some of us. What about our doubts? So let me talk to you about the purpose of doubt. Doubt for me pushes me to think deeper to pray harder, and to investigate. Think about that. When I don't, I don't know, so Pam, I'm picking on you. Pam tells me, hey, I, I saw this miracle today. And I go, I don't think so, Pam. Do I trust Pam? Can I pick on you, Pam? I trust Pam. She's a, she's a woman of, of, of great honor. Well, I trust Pam, but maybe she's mistaken. So then I can go out and investigate it. And I can run it down. 
Well, Pam and I are the same generation, so I can go look at the evidence. Can I trust someone who wrote 2,000 years ago that Jesus is truly alive today? You know, because people raising from the dead is not a common thing. Here's the primary evidence. I just mentioned the eyewitnesses. These guys, some would say they lied. They made this story up. There are people who are biblical theologians who don't believe the resurrection. They spent their whole life in education, but they do not believe in the resurrection. And they would say, well, it's a lie. They made it up. Guess what? Eleven of the twelve apostles were put to death for their faith. John is the only one that didn't get martyred. He died an old man. The other eleven were mercilessly put to death for claiming Jesus rose from the dead. Would you die for a lie? Let's not, let's not discount the fact that historically speaking, we have these apostles who went into the world, and then when they are confronted and threatened with death, all they had to do was say, I'm lying. This was a big joke. We made it up. But they didn't. They died for a lie. And here's the lie, or here's the truth they are claiming to lie about. The tomb is empty. Think about this. The tomb is empty. Now, Jesus' death involved the leadership of Israel and the leadership of Rome that was in that area. It involved multiple people, temple guards and Roman soldiers. Many people saw the death. Then his body was taken down and put into a public tomb where, where two disciples, Joseph, Arimathea, and Nicodemus, put him in that tomb, and other ladies went and saw it. They put guards around the tomb. All you would have to do in this generation, as the disciples immediately, 10 days later, the Holy Spirit comes upon them, and they start preaching Jesus is alive. And the leadership of Israel said, stop preaching in his name. He says, we can't stop. We've been told to do it. We cannot stop. We will obey God rather than you. Jesus is alive. One simple thing they could have done, and Christianity had been dead from the gate. And what is that one thing? Go to the tomb where he was, pull his body out, drag it through the streets of Jerusalem, and say, look, he's dead. Quit this mythology. And they didn't do it. They couldn't do it. There's been all sorts of th theories about the swoon theory. You ever heard that one? These are serious theories that people had in the last hundred years. The swoon theory is the idea that Jesus, he, he, he actually passed out on the cross. He really didn't die. But they thought he was dead. So they put him in the tomb, and the coolness of the tomb revived him. And then he came out, and they think he's alive. Now, if you'd been half beaten to death in without water or food for three days in a tomb, and you come out, do you think people would think you were, you were raised from the dead or you were a walking corpse? These theories don't make sense. Mass hallucination. There's one point where 1 Corinthians 15 tells us Jesus appeared to 500 people at one time. Besides the apostles, a mass hallucination. They, they wanted it so bad that... 
they just psychologically came up with this idea that he's alive. Would be the only time in history that happens. These are desperate attempts to somehow deny what is historically true. Christ is risen. Let's do that again. Christ is risen. Does it matter? I would suggest to you the cross and the resurrection are the heart of Christianity. Without those, you don't have Christianity. It wasn't given to us as a moral system or, or a social system. It certainly is those two things, but it wasn't given to us for that. The cross and the resurrection are the heart of Christianity. In the 1990s, there was a seminar called the Jesus Seminar. Biblical scholars who, who do not believe in miracles, by the way, this group, they didn't believe in miracles, so they came together to look at the, the Bible stories, specifically the Gospels, and say, what's really true and what's not? And they excluded all miracles from what's really true. Because they had a, a presupposition. They were miracle atheists, just like my UFO atheism. Miracles cannot happen, so we'll look for a different explanation. And what's the greatest miracle of the New Testament? The resurrection. So Marcus Borg, one of those scholars, resurrection did not really happen. He says this, it was a myth conjured up by his disciples. And in the end, it simply doesn't matter if Jesus was raised from the dead. The Apostle Paul disagrees. So this is why if, if listen carefully, it won't be, won't be slides. 1 Corinthians 15, the whole chapter is about the resurrection. A couple of verses. If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. See, Marcus Borg said it doesn't matter. You can still have a genuine faith. Paul says, no, you can't. If Jesus was not raised from the dead, your faith is useless. In fact, it goes on to say, we of all men are most to be pitied. A few verses later, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. The resurrection is what put the capstone on our salvation. If it didn't happen, death won. And the wages of sin is? And that's where we still live. If the resurrection did not happen. I want to show you this, this slide. If the story ends here, then we're wasting our time. You guys know Thomas Jefferson edited the Bible? Did you know that? It's still published today. He took the resurrection out. The Gospels end with the cross. Because Thomas Jefferson was, was, um, was part of the Enlightenment. It's not reasonable to believe in a resurrection. My age, if you're my age, remember Jesus Christ Superstar? Great soundtrack. Jesus, the movie ends, Jesus on the cross. There's no resurrection. So if that's true, we're wasting our time. But the next slide. If the tomb is empty, then everything changes. Everything. The cross and the empty tomb are the heart of Christianity. Let me reread to you again John 20, 30, 31. The theme of John revisited here. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these were written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, 
And that by believing, you may have life in his name. So first of all, if you're a doubter like me, doubt is not a sin. Categorically, I mean, not, not necessarily. But doubt can become something that leaves you in your sin. Work through your doubt. Struggle hard. Pray about it. There's some great books out there on the reasonableness of the resurrection. Email me. I'll recommend a few to you. If you're one of those kind of people that from Missouri, you got to have evidence. Show me. Then don't just walk out of here saying, ah, that doesn't happen. This event changed the world. But more importantly, that by believing, you may have life in his name. What is this life? I read post on Facebook. I don't post anything on Facebook, but I read, I'm like a voyeur. I read everyone else's stuff, but I don't post anything. A friend of mine in Washington is a pastor. He put on there, he said, he said, Jesus didn't die and rise from the dead so you can have a changed life. Right away, I go, whoa, wait a minute, of course he did. Then he wanted to say, a changed life is you quit smoking, your life's changed. A changed life is you got married this year, your life's changed. Jesus died on the cross and rose again so you can have a new life. Not a chain, not changing the old one. The old one's dead. There's a new life. And that new life is forgiveness secured for you. Everything we've done that is contrary to the will of God has been forgiven because of the resurrection. That new life is purpose. You struggle with why am I here? It's a human question. Why, why do I wake up breathing every day? This new life gives us a purpose, a purpose that has eternal value. And this new life also makes you look at the person next to you and realize the person next to me, no matter where they are in their faith journey, is an image bearer of God that deserves great respect. It changes how we treat each other. It's supposed to. The church hasn't always done well at this one. In fact, some generations we failed miserably. Let's let our generation be different. But this new life we have, we live in the forgiveness God has secured for us through the cross and the resurrection. The purpose we have, we wake up every day, and frankly, when, when someone asks me, I've met many people in the hospital on their deathbed, and, and death, their death is lingering. They're saying, why am I still here? Why, what is my purpose? Why isn't God taking me? And I said, I can't answer that definitively, but here's what I know. That as long as you take breath, you have a purpose. And purpose is the people in your life. So focus on them. This one lady was in a convalescent center and she didn't have any family left. I said, every time one of those nurses walks through that door, he or she is your purpose while you're still alive. It's people. Forgiveness. And our purpose of loving our neighbor as ourselves. There's way more. New life. I deeply encourage you, if you are here today and you're brand new to the faith, and this is a shameless plug, come to my Discover class. If you're here and you go, you know, I'm not sure this stuff is real. Is it a bunch of baloney? Come to my Discover class. The class will be very interactive, lots of questions and answers. Lots of times I'll say, I don't know the answer to that. There's opportunity, if you're one of the doubters like me, to step into that doubt and say, let's talk about it. No, no judgment, no condemnation. 
But today, I mentioned early, if the Spirit of God is knocking on your door right now and saying to you, Fred, Mary, any Fred's and Mary in the room? <laughs> what he's saying up there is true. Jesus is alive, offers you forgiveness. And what it requires of you is to bow your knee and come to me. That's what the Lord's saying to you right now. Do not, do not leave this building without doing that. I'll be outside afterwards. Please come talk to me. Let's pray. Father, your kindness to us is immeasurable. Your patience is beautiful. Thank you for your patience. Lord, we thank you for what this salvation is. That... When we were dead in our sins and trespasses, you made us alive. You gave us new life with new purpose, a forgiveness we live in. We thank you for that. And Lord, increase our capacity to be grateful. As we sing this next song, Lord, about being grateful to you, just open our eyes to everything we have to be grateful for. And we love you in Christ's name. Amen.